ragged idiot. I'm the famous Eccles, and I got a message for you. Let me see. This paper is blank. I know. I got to write the message on it. <laughs> now then, what's your name? Sigun. Okay. Dear Sigun, the man who is writing this note has a message for you. Sign, sign, Eccles. There, read that. Is it for me? Let me see. Your name Seagoon? Yes. Yup, it's for you, yup. <laughs> who's it from? Um, who's it from now? Let me see. Um, signed ink. Oh, no, no. Signed ink. Signed ink. No, that's not what it. Got the word here. Got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Don't worry. So, oh, oh, signed Eccles. It's, it's from me. <laughs> to the topic of today's episode, just a little bit of housekeeping. I suggested on Twitter earlier this week that uh, I'm thinking of doing a special show, possibly at the end of the year, a rundown of listeners' top 20 favorite goon shows. So I did ask people if they could uh, DM me on Twitter. It's at goonshowpod, if you want to follow me and you're not doing already, or message me on Facebook. Um, There is a Facebook group uh goon pod group please seek that out search for that if you haven't already uh or email me on uh tyler.adams1974 at gmail.com so yeah if you haven't already please send me uh your top three goon shows uh between now and the end of the year i'll be putting together a list of the top 20 goon shows as chosen by you so uh, if you could please uh do that that'd be fantastic uh just a little quick word on some forthcoming episodes which are scheduled we're going to be doing an episode on uh the inspector clouseau films of the 60s um so that will be uh, the pink panther obviously shot in the dark and even the non-peter sellers clouseau film starring ellen arkin uh probably be doing clouseau in the 70s at a later date uh, we're also going to be looking at the great uh, live LP um, that Spike recorded at Cambridge with Jeremy Taylor in the 70s. And also, I'm going to be joined for a special episode by Dirk Mags himself. So look out for that. We'll also be covering goon shows such as Wings Over Dagenham, Tales of Montmartre, and The String Robberies. Oh, one other thing. Um I have had several people say to me, you haven't mentioned the melting pot recently. Uh, So I'm just mentioning it now to keep those people happy. Okay. Uh, Now on to today's show, I'm joined by Anthony Mudge, uh, who uh, came along to talk to me about the classic series five Goon Show episode, The Case of the Missing Heir. And just for a little bit of a, a, a change, uh, I thought this week that we would actually go through the show with in quite sort of forensic detail and compare the actual show as it went out with the uh, the script that they used on the day of recording. So hopefully this will be of interest to listeners. And if not, then tough cheese, as they say in polite society. So, um, yeah, so Anthony came along and I started off by asking him the time-honored question, how did he come to discover The Goon Show? Um, well, as with many people our age, it was through my father, but not initially through any of the shows, because um, the, the first time I would have come across The Goons would have been when he got a, a, a cassette um, called The World of the Goons, um, which I think we've still got kicking about somewhere. Um, had a, a goose, I think, looking yeah. down into a, a gramophone, um, can't think of the word. Horn. That's the one, yes. 
the yeah. gramophone horn. And um, I mean, I first heard all the, the classic songs in there, and certainly it probably started with uh, the Ying Tong song, but then had uh, some that uh, seem to be a bit more difficult to get hold of these days. I mean, uh, Raspberry Song, Rhymes, mm-hmm. um, Blue Bottle Blues, which I absolutely adored from the first. Yes. But then I'd, I hadn't really come across the, the goons much before that, because, well, I was born and grew up in France, and so didn't have the exposure to, to so much British culture. Um, I think the first one I'd have come across, really, of any of the, the goon cast was uh, Spike Milligan himself through um, his nonsense poetry. Sure, and sure. Uh, Peter, Peter Sellers, um, well, I remember staying up to work, uh, being allowed to stay up for slightly later than usual to watch the opening credits of some of the Pink Panther films, but they're not having any interest in the main body of the film itself. <laughs> so, and um, as for Harry Seacombe was uh, the last one I actually got to, to appreciate, but he's also the only one I ever got to saw live playing the title role in Pickwick. Oh, right. When was that? Um, I think early 90s. Um, so I definitely, I'd heard a few Goon shows by then and uh, really enjoyed them. And I recall there was one brief scene in it where it was only Pickwick and whoever his his servant was. And they briefly went off script because uh, um, Harry Seacombe suddenly came out with a very um, Sea Goon sounding series of, of random sounds. It wasn't quite Yakaboo, but you know, something along those right. lines. Okay. And the best thing was that the, the servant responded in kind. Ah, so it's um, just, just a, a lovely little breaking of the fourth wall that worked so wonderfully for that one scene. Lovely, lo- lovely little bit of business that they probably rehearsed to the nth degree. Oh, probably, yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> just You mentioned about the Pink Panther opening, the animated opening credits. I was watching or re-watching the other day, and I've, uh, it actually kind of ties into the show we're going to talk about today. I was re-watching uh, Pink Panther Strikes again. That's probably, I think, has got the the, the best opening titles sequence of the whole. I haven't seen any of them in years, I have to admit. So I, I, I have to get back into them, clearly. Yeah, well, um, it's it's basically, it's, it's the Pink Panther character as different stars of Hollywood, essentially. Oh. Um, but yeah, um, Pink Panther Strikes Again, it features a sort of climactic third act where there's a castle and there's a moat um, and there's a drawbridge. And that does ah, yes, and th- th- there was a, beautifully yes, yeah. There was a sequence in the show we're going to talk about today that just made mm-hmm. me think of that. Uh, so, in terms of the Goon Show, you said obviously you, you got into it through the music. Now, I believe that you're um, something of a musician yourself. Yes, and um, well, it's uh, mostly choral singing, but there's also a further dimension to the the attraction for this particular episode. Um, I studied German at university and spent uh, about a year in Austria. Um, which uh, oh. had attractions as, because of the, the musical heritage. And uh, so it was, um, I will say for, the, for this particular episode, it's the way that they managed to evoke the Austrian setting, which is pretty unusual for the Goon Show, in ways that are surprisingly subtle. Now, these days you'd do it with a sledgehammer, you'd immediately have the Blue Danube on there or, or some reference to Sound of Music. Yes, yeah. Let's cut to the chase. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the case of the missing heir which is from the fifth series. It's uh, show 16. Uh, and it was uh, broadcast on the 11th of January, 1955, written by um, uh, Spike Milligan, Eric Sykes, and produced mm-hmm. by Peter Eaton. Now, uh, a very good friend of mine and former guest of the show, Graham Lindsay Foote. Um, he supplied me with a copy of an original script for this particular show. And it's actually Peter, producer Peter Eaton's script with... Um, a lot of sort of, um, it's like a doctor's uh, prescription, a lot of illegible handwriting throughout it and bits crossed out and bits penciled in. And But, but I, I thought it would be, it was quite interesting um, in terms of how closely the original script, which would have been the script they used on the day of recording, mm-hmm. how closely it aligned with what was actually recorded and what went out. Um, so not necessarily too, not too much improvisation or, or bits added to it then? Well, we'll, get, we'll, we'll come to that. Um, <laughs> sorry, a, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm t- heading into spoiler territory here. Oh, don't worry, no, no, there's a, there's a couple, there's, there's one significant addition um, that you hear in the show or the show as it was broadcast that isn't in the script at all. And I'm just wondering where, uh, well, well, we'll come to that when we, when we get to it. So this particular episode, uh, Anthony, you said you only heard it relatively recently via, via BBC Sounds. Is that right? 
Yes, um, and to, I mean, to be honest, it was at the point where I thought I'd heard pretty much every single Goon show, or at least everyone of note. Okay. And I was taken aback by the quality of this one, because I, I know that there's some of the, the early ones and, and later ones where the, the lack of plot does make them a bit difficult to, to get into. Um, but this one has a, a pretty coherent plot to it as well, and a lot of sequences that may not be absolutely top tier, um, which I think may be why it's uh, it's uh, overlooked in the in the grander scheme of things. Sure, yeah. Well, I, remember. I was just taken aback of it to, to to come across such a good episode that I'd never come uh, that I'd never heard previously. Yeah, I remember being very fond of this when I first heard it. Whenever that would have been back in the late eighties, it was never going to be one of my favourites, but it was mm-hmm. certainly um, one that I uh, appreciated listening to again and again particularly for the Minnie and Henry sequence, which- Oh, yes, yes, um, which is wonderful. Which is wonderful. Now, uh, very often during the fifth series in the Radio Times listing, there would be a a plot synopsis, which often bore uh, little or no relation to the actual show itself that went out, but there would be a synopsis. Um, Now, for this particular episode, I did check the original Radio Times listing. There's no Mm -hmm. synopsis. So what I've done is I've actually just put together a little, um, little summary of- uh, the plot, the show, um, just so that we can uh, use it as a sort of a jumping off point. Please do. High treachery and grand deceptions in the sleepy hamlet of Bacon Bonts, as young Nettie Seagoon, descended from the house of Dimberger, embarks upon a walking tour of the Austrian Istrian in 1909. He attends a grand ball in honour of the heir to the Eidelberger throne, Kron Prince Arnold and is immediately embroiled in a treasonous assassination plot devised by those two unscrupulous reactionaries, Colonel Gridpipe and Count Moriarty. Neddy, ever the fall guy, is duped into believing he is the rightful heir to the throne, and so begins an attempt to plant a bomb in the bed of the so-called imposter, Kron Prince Arnold. With revolting villages, a secret parcel, and Minnie Bannister left holding the breakfast, will Seagoon succeed in his perilous errand of Les Majestés? That was fabulous. Thank you. have drawn attention in that to one of the, the what I'd wondered uh, might have been a continuity error in it because the, it's the, um, the Imperial family, the Eidelbergers, and yet Seagoon's birthmark is identified as for, from the Dimberger. It's an interesting... Right. Let's start. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so as I say, I have Peter Eaton's script here. Uh, it's got um, a title page, The Goon Show, number 115. And... It's got, with Peter Sellers, Harry Seacombe, Spike Milligan, in number 16, The Case of the Missing Heir. And then it's got cast in order of speaking. Okay. Um, And the cast is more or less just an invention. Because we've got Ned Seagoon, Harry Seacombe, Crown Crown Prince Fred, Peter Sellers. Now, I don't think we hear from Crown Prince Fred, do we? We hear the imposter who... We find out that it's not actually the Crown Prince, but... And it seems obviously Peter Sellers making all those, those noises he's sort of stretching in bed, but it's not exactly a part. Oh, it's Crown Prince Arnold. In of the course, show. yes, as well. And um, then we have a character called Princess Vest, <laughs> played by Spike. Right. These are these are just I think these are just Spike included these just as you know just to make the, the other guys laugh, essentially. Uh, Archduke, <laughs> we got Archduke Foonpipe de Bongegroin, <laughs> played by Harry Seekin. Um <laughs> What's a name? Yeah, the Duchess of Scathe Plunger, played by Peter Sellers. <laughs> yes. Um, back to normality, Miss Minnie Bannister, Spike Milligan, Watchmaker Crun, Peter Sellers. Watchmaker Crun. No, he's not a watchmaker. That's, <laughs> no, but it, it's a, I mean, that's a, exactly the sort of thing you'd imagine Henry doing. Though. Yes, in, a, in an Austrian village, yes. Yes. Exactly, yes, definitely. Fred Bogg, Harry Seagram. Now, Fred Bogg, the character, doesn't turn up, I don't think, in this. Uh, Major Blood, not Peter Sellers. Eccles, Mm -hmm. Spike, and Blue Bottle, Peter Sellers. Okay, so, yeah. Again, as I say, I think Spike just adds these these additional characters to the title page just as a, just to flesh it out a bit, maybe. Um, Yeah, well, it it doesn't feel as if the cast, uh, as we hear it in the show, is particularly thin anyway. I'm not sure the, the extra characters who never appear would have added much. No. No, that, that, Unless, of course, it, it could have been guest parts for you know, Valentine Dial or people of that sort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the show begins with, uh, I think this is a particularly good show for Wallace Greenslade to uh, oh, yes. flex his acting chops. Um, yes, I, I do like those the, the random um, insights <laughs> you get into his supposed private life. 
yes. in, in various shows. I'm, it all culminates in the Green State story, of course, but so just to, the ones where it's just completely thrown in um, for no apparent reason are delightful. Greenslade begins with uh, the Greenslade impressions and is doing an impression of a train. Yes. <laughs> oh, look, I'm a train. It's going to be a long, hard winter. <laughs> Uh, and then he thanks listeners for sending in um, lovely gifts of ties, socks and shirts. Ties, yes. Um, and it would appear that he's um, set up a new business. He's obviously the tobacco business from uh, the Phantom Head Shaver. Uh, Shaver, yes. Fell through. So he set up a, a Natty Gents Outfitters yes. in London. Uh, <laughs> Which is a lovely name for business as well. <laughs> and then we have the wedding march. And Harry, Harry basically says, there's nothing to do with the show, but isn't it lovely? And um, also, it's it's a rare instance of hearing Harry's Welsh accent as well. Yes, which he doesn't get to do very often. Yes, and he he really leans on that, doesn't he? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's good. I, it, I'm trying to remember. It's um, oh, the the the, the mighty Wurlitzer. Yeah, in which there's uh, the the introduction all in Wales. Yes, with everyone finishing all their sentences with a Bach. Bach. But that yeah. that I think is is well, it's the other major instance I can think of of uh, Welsh accents coming into play. Oh, there's a few few others, but I can't bring them to mind at the moment. Then Greenslade sort of sets the scene, and he says, uh, "Ladies and gentlemen, from the story by Franz Lihar, we tell a tale of the Austro-Hungarian Empire when Vienna was young, and Vic Oliver was still bumming his way in the working men's clubs." And Did then, you have to look up Vic Oliver as well? No, I, I was aware of Vic Oliver. Ah, right. What 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 do you know of Vic Oliver? Well, I just I'm, I I thought I, I should look him up because this was plainly going to be a contemporary reference. Yeah. And I know the thing that impressed me here was the fact that they could have uh, that um, Spike and Eric Sykes could have thrown in a reference to more or less any comic that they didn't think much of. But um, Vic Oliver, I discovered, was Austrian born. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. And he was initially he'd initially. Um, studied to become a musician oh okay and so i'm not sure at what point he moved over to to britain um oh in fact sorry no i i, I can report because he was uh, from a jewish family uh, okay um so yes yeah, so it, it would have been shortly before the war but that seemed like and it seemed like a very suitable reference to throw in yeah absolutely i mean i maybe that was i'm sure that was probably common knowledge around comedians and comics at the time um, mm -hmm. Perhaps, perhaps that was what uh, inspired Spike or Eric to put that in. Um, but I'm certainly at the time he would have been in his fifties, so um, I can see how they might have seen him as a, as a bit past it. Okay, and that makes sense because while they're talking about Vienna was young and Vic Oliver was still bumming his way around, right? Okay, that makes yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it does actually make sense. Okay. It's not just a random <laughs> joke. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. Uh, but I didn't realise that. Right. I, I didn't even check because I just knew him as a, a comedian, as a comic. Um, now, there's a lovely bit of music here, which brought to mind to me, and you'll be able to correct me here, but it brought to mind, I know it isn't, but uh, Cavatina by John Williams um, from The Dare Hunter. Oh, is it the bit on, on the zither? Yes. It sounds as though it could be a guitar. Now, that, it's actually a Strauss waltz. Okay. Um, so again, fits it fits well for the setting, um, but and the fact that the it's an orchestral waltz that has a solo part in it for the the zither, which is a um, very much an Austrian stringed instrument that sounds a bit like a guitar. I'm fascinating to watch someone playing it, but there's also I, I think there's a, a further clever reference in that that even if you didn't recognise it as a Strauss waltz, the sound of the instrument immediately refers back to the third man. It's going to say the Harry um, Lime thing. Exactly, yes. Mm. So it's the same instrument. Okay, well, I'm glad I've got you on talking about this. This is great. Okay. Because uh, when it comes to music, I'm, I mean, I, you know, I, I like music as much as the next guy, but I'm, I'm certainly no uh, student of it. Thank oh. you for that. And it's, it, I found it particularly interesting there because there are a couple of references in, in other Goon shows to um, Blue Bottle. Uh, mentioning that he's uh, a man of mystery, seeing the Harry Lyme theme and trying to pass yep. himself off yep. as inevitably as something more than he is. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, here's an interesting thing where the script has changed from what's in the script and what actually is recorded. 
Um, so we have Peter doing a, a, a tremendously ropey Austra- uh, Australian Austrian accent. Yes. Um, and originally in the script, it was it was it's, it says uh, Austria between the years 1913 and 1915, or to be exact, 1914. Now, Ooh. in the in the in the broadcast version, it is um, between the years 1908, eight and 1910, 1910, or to be exact, 1909. Yeah, so they've changed that in between it being written and it being rehearsed, and. I'm guessing the reason for that, and it makes sense, is if you're setting it in 1914, it's, you know, Europe is on the verge of war. Um, yes, yeah, so that it would be too much of a, a reference to actual events of the, the assassination of the, yes. of, of the Archduke. So. True, true. So, so they've, they've quite wisely changed that, and, uh, knocked it back a few years. Um, we have uh, Harry... Ned Segan, who's on a walking tour of the uh, Austrian Istrian, as he says, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) somehow or other he contrives to get an invitation to a grand ball held at the Schloss Brandenburg in honour of uh, the Emperor's son, Crown Prince Arnold. We have the appearance of Grippipe Thin and and Moriarty, or Colonel Grippipe and Count Moriarty. Moriarty playing, Moriarty, who's ostensibly a French character, playing a Austrian character now mm. um the the two of them are planning a conspiracy they're planning an assassination uh, but there's a lovely way in which they they go into the the entire discussion about the conspiracy that they're hanging off the chandelier and um the the way that sellers actually does the lead into the waltz by um implying the one two three one two three yes. rhythm yes yeah there's, there's always been a, a spike i think started this when he wrote character synopses for the Goon Show scripts and whatnot, there's always been, and even in the Goon Shows in the 50s as they went out, there were occasional allusions to Grip Pipe Thin perhaps being gay. Um, perhaps. I think the Goon Show scripts imply it very heavily. Well, think. yeah, okay. But in the Goon Show, as it went out in the 50s, there were certain... Oh, yes, yes, in the show itself. Granted. Yeah, there was a few There's a few little... I think from The Lost Emperor, for example, there's a scene where um, Eccles is holding Grip Pipe Thin up at gunpoint. Eccles, not quite right. You see, to get the right feeling, you must close your eyes. <laughs> I'm no fool. If I close my eyes, I won't be able to see you. Will you miss me? <laughs> oh, here, 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 here. <laughs> So flirtatious. <laughs> but yes, there's, there's little, there's peppered throughout the, the, the series run, there's, there's little illusions here and there. To grip pipe perhaps being gay um and you know obviously this is just uh you know uh, uh, for the sake of the story and it's a nice little little gag that he and uh, uh moriarty are doing a waltz um and then of course uh, well, we're saying this then seagoon cuts in because it's an yes, excuse, me. excuse me dance uh, <laughs> uh now there's a there's a line that isn't in the script and i'm i just like to think that Harry improvised it there and then, or perhaps as they were rehearsing, uh, they came up with it. But the line, would you mind taking your knees out of my eyes? Um, that wasn't in the script. And I think that's that's a wonderful line. <laughs> so it, it's I mean, the, the references to Seagoon's lack of height, um, I mean, they're, they're all over the place, but this is a particularly visual <laughs> one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, probably my favourite, well, apart from the Minnie and Henry sequence, probably my favourite, uh, my other favourite sequence in the whole show is the bit that, that, that comes up now, which is when uh, the announcement, uh, we've got Wallace Greenslade introducing some guests that have arrived. Their Imperial Majesties, the Emperor and Empress, Fernandel El Juan de Lobos, Catalania of Sardinia. <laughs> His Excellency, the Count de Shekels, Ambassador to the Royal Principality of the House of Jorgenburg II. 
Smith. <laughs> I say, that's our British ambassador. Thank you, thank you very much, thank you. <laughs> there he goes, collecting for Britain. And then we have this bit where, again, this isn't in the script at all. And I've got to imagine that it has been um, improvised what during rehearsal and added, mm-hmm. or possibly, it, it is possible that they just sort of agree between them prior to recording to just add this in. So they're talking about the British ambassador who's, uh, who's you know, passing around a cup, collecting for Britain. And then Seagoon says, and here comes the prime minister. Ah, um, good morning. <laughs> Say your voice has changed. Yes. Don't you read the paper? <laughs> so that bit wasn't in originally. That's interesting. No. And you have Salas very briefly starts doing a Churchill impression. Yes, and changes immediately. And changes it to sort of like a what do you call it? A hooray Henry kind of voice. <laughs> yes. Um Segan says your voice sounds different or something. Okay. And he says, Don't you read the papers? Papers, yes. Now, I take it that this was the first show that was broadcast after it was announced, that, well, after it was decided by the powers that be that the Sellers could no longer do a Churchill impression. Quite possibly. I'm not quite sure if that's, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a labyrinth, really. Um, and, I, and I want to give credit to Sean Gaffney and Nick Reeve, Nick Reeve, who does the wonderful uh, Seagoon Memoirs blog, and he's actually a um, previous guest. Uh the church, yeah, I mean, Sellers was getting into trouble for doing Churchill impressions. And there was a, a line in a previous show. I'm not sure if it was Ye Bandit of Sherwood Forest or Forog. I'm not sure which one it was, but uh, where Churchill is looking for a blasted telegram. Can't find a telegram. Oh, yes. Um, yes and that refers to um, a, a story in the papers at the time where um, Churchill had conveniently lost a, a telegram, which apparently he had... Um, sent to Field Marshal Montgomery in 1945, uh, requesting him to um, keep captured German weapons in order to rearm German soldiers in case there was a Soviet invasion. It was a minor brouhaha. Um, do you know about this? Um, yes, I'd, I'd, I'd looked into it at some point because I, I, I recall hearing years ago that uh, there had been a point when when Sellers had been instructed to stop doing the Churchill impressions um, and had got a, a sort of appreciation for why um, that it had clearly got too close to the bone, uh, that the establishment felt decidedly uncomfortable with it. But I, I found it fascinating here to hear uh, an, uh, uh, the whole thing being lampshaded, that, uh, that yes, it was, um, that uh, I got to hear the show in which the, the change happened, for want of a better term. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not quite sure. Possibly you're right. Possibly that that was a clear signal that there weren't going to be any, any more Churchill impressions. Um, but who knows? But I think things like the um, uh, my mind's gone blank. Uh, the Phantom Headshaver episode, um, when you do get uh, Sellers doing a Churchill impression, that one is clearly not at all fact based. No. Um, you know, the, the, the whole reference to um, Churchill saying to, I think it's Anthony Eden, um, what have we got to lose? Uh, that, that is sheer fantasy, whereas something like a, a reference to a lost telegram, that is a bit too cutting in terms of humour. Yeah, a bit too close to the bone, a bit too uh, yeah. Uh, satirical. Yeah, yeah. So then we get a bit of plot. <laughs> Moriarty informs, <laughs> informs Grip Pipe that um, the man... That, that they had tasked with planting the bomb has got cold feet um, and a corny gag. I, I, had a, I had a query about this, and it struck me that they missed a joke here. Right. Because they've always, they've refer, I mean, the the line here is that I mean, if, um, the bomb got cold feet, uh, apparently because he wears no socks, hmm. but they'd already established that uh, the bomb was to be in a hot water bottle. I'd have thought you could have tied in the two together. If he's ah. got cold feet, use a hot water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah really overthinking it now aren't we <laughs> oh definitely yes <laughs> well that, that was the trouble with having with having selected a show i thought look i've got to listen to it properly and think about it and look things up and it suddenly struck me that's 
an interesting joke. Why didn't they go in this direction? Well, I, f- I found myself doing that as well. Um, and, and I'm Glad it's not just me. I'm not comparing myself at all to Spike Milligan, of course. Oh, but, God, uh, for heaven, though. I but, wouldn't want uh, to. Heaven forfend. But um, yes. there, have been, there have been occasions when I've been listening to a show or looking at a script and thinking, actually, no, I'd have, I'd have said that or I'd have put that mm. in instead. I'd have changed that line. Um, who the hell do I think I am? <laughs> um, just before we get to more plots, we have Wallace Greenslade as a shill for the Radio Times doing a little plug reminding listeners that the uh, next week's issue of the Radio Times is on sale, price threepence. Um, unlike the previous announcer, Andrew Timothy, who was a bit stuffed shirt. Yes. Um, they've had Greenslade um, for more or less a, a whole series by now. Because um, I think he came in sort of mid-series four, and they're now mid-series five. And they're playing around with Greenslade, the character, more and more and more. And he's, uh, you know... He's an unflappable, um, staunch advocate of the Radio Times and everything BBC. And that character, you know, they would continue to develop the Greenside character more and more and more. He starts getting parts in future shows, for example, thinking Napoleon's piano when he plays a French character. Oh, um, yes. And then, and Doing then a French accent very badly. Yes. And as you say, he gets his own show. Uh, which mm-hmm. is which is you know which is considered one of the best goon shows of all time. They were they were very lucky to go, be able to get an announcer who was willing to do these things as well. So yes, because they they could presumably only play up the the stuffed shirt side of uh, Andrew Timothy to to an extent, and there's no no room for that to develop. No, I, 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 and obviously the thing is we there's very very few recordings of shows that feature Andrew Timothy that exist. Uh, we, have, we have the scripts, but you kind of get the impression that um, if you know if they tried to rope in Andrew Timothy into a, a sequence or a sketch or try to get him to do something other than you know perform the task that he's paid for, you, you kind of get the impression he would flare his nostrils and throw his head back and say absolutely not, you know. Whereas, yeah. whereas Greenslade is all you know, he's all about it. He's he's well. Yeah, so for it. perfectly game to do this. Is yeah, yeah. And so we have we have Grip Pipe and Moriarty uh, plotting, and uh, they 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 decide that Harry is uh, the ideal person to plant this bomb. Um, there's another change to the script here. Um, Grip Pipe says uh, in the script, Seagoon, take off your bowler," but in the actual show, he says, "Take off your three ply deer stalker," uh, and- which seems much more in keeping with some of the the. the- Rather strange items of clothing that uh, that are uh, referred to in umpteen other shows, like concrete vests and um, <laughs> hats of all descriptions. So, you know, th- items of clothing made from completely logical materials. I could imagine if Neddy's doing a walking tour of Austria, I could imagine him in one of those those hats with the huge feather sticking out. Of oh, it. definitely, yes, <laughs> yes. He, he'd, he'd probably have picked up the, at an exorbitant sum before yes. leaving. Yes. <laughs> In fact, that, that, that would be another business for, for um, Grip Pipe Thin and uh, Moriarty to set up. Oh, yeah. So, selling selling uh, travelling clothes to, uh, to idiots. <laughs> to Charlie's, yeah. Yes. Um, I'm sure that one of my favourite films is Goodbye Mr Chips, the Robert Donut. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goodbye Mr Chips from 1939, I think it was. Um, and there's a sequence in that where he and his friend go on a walking tour of, I think it's Austria. And I'm sure that he purchases a hat that's got a huge feather in it. Um, they, you know, they saw him coming. Yes. Um, but to be fair, you do. I mean, 20 years ago, I'm not sure if it's so much a case now. You did still see um, elderly ladies in Vienna with those hats on. I mean, looking massively <laughs> old fashioned, but uh, they're probably ones that have been passed down through the family. So they can't possibly get rid of them. Yeah, of course. Of course not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Grip Pipe says to Moriarty, uh, look at the birthmark on the lining of his hat so again you know um but in the script he actually says look at the birthmark on his right arm which is rather dull so i'm glad that they exactly yes glad they changed that and moriarty realizes with a gasp that this this birthmark is the royal birthmark of the dimburgers Mm. and he says um he says you know he says that to neddy do you know you know that is the royal birthmark of of the dimburgers and neddy says yes i've been told that often and there's no audience reaction at all to that. And it's not, that yes. It's not a funny line necessarily, but it, it kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's not a joke, but it's, it is kind of a funny line. 
if you know what I mean. Well, maybe it's a sort of joke that just um, caused the audience to smile rather than anything else. Possibly, possibly. Yeah. Yes. You'd hope so, anyway. Yes. Grip Pipe informs Neddy that he is the rightful heir to the throne. And by the way, um, the show is called The Case of the Missing Heir. It's never referred to by that in the show, by that title. Quite, um, yes. At, at one point, Greenslade refers to the show as uh, The Rightful Heir. As the title. Oh, true. Yes. And then Harry finds when when Harry discovers that he's supposedly the 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 rightful heir, he he goes off on one essentially. And, and well, so, yes, it, it reminded me very much of when he's put in charge of the gold vault in Dishonored. Yes. Yes. yes I, mean, I mean, you don't then get the follow up line of um, I wonder if he's the right man for the job, <laughs> but it's very much that kind of thing. I and mean, it's his, it's his vanity that's that has been pricked here, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's such a perpetually happy, cheerful, positive character, isn't he? Um, yes. And uh, and I just love this little sequence where he starts singing. He sings "Be My a Snatch of Be My Love." My love, yes. Uh, speak to me, Thora. I think. Um, <laughs> and then he does he does a snatch of "In the Mood" as performed by the Andrews Sisters. Um, yes. Mister, what you call and what you're doing tonight. <laughs> which um, obviously famously in the mood was hated by Peter Sellers and was uh, played was at his, I didn't know that yeah it was played at his funeral as a kind of a in joke because he hated it uh... <laughs> me Emperor of Austria or Hungary yes <laughs> oh we'll have a grand time won't we yeah. <laughs> wine and, and girls and, and wine and, and girls and, yes. and girls and singing <laughs> be my lord Speak to me, Thora! Speak to me, Thora! <laughs> I'm king! <laughs> Good luck, I'm king! <laughs> I must send a postcard to the lads, mustn't I? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Mr. What you call him, what you doing tonight? I'm an emperor! Aren't we all? You silly, twisted boy. You... <laughs> so, yeah, so Ned's totally bought into this, this whole notion that he is the rightful heir, uh, but then Grip Pipe informs him that the only way that he will be able to uh, uh, claim the throne is by planting a bomb in the bed of Crown Prince Arnold. And we get... On which occasions one of those wonderful, very audible gulps. Yes, and a thud. Yes, yes. Um, which then hastens stretcher bearer Galdray. And we have Max Galdray. Mm. Now, which is a good opportunity for me to ask you, uh, I'm sure that you never skipped the music, being the sort of guy that you You'd are. You'd be sure. surprised, actually. Oh, come um, on. I go from one extreme to the other. There are times when I skip it altogether. And I think it's because of all of the things in The Goon Show, the music, the, the, the Max Geldray and Ray Ellington songs are often the most predictable parts, which right. considering how, how, sorry, I can't think of a better word than zany, but how, how off the wall the humour can be within the scripts. And the, the number of songs that the, the two of them perform that start off slowly, and then it speeds up for the final verse. It's a bit, yeah, okay, could we do something different for once? Mm. I mean, this is one of the exceptions, actually, because I noticed when I was re-listening to this just this morning, that Max Geldre's piece actually stays slow throughout, which is quite refreshing. Mm. But so there, there are times when I do listen to them, at other times I think I can't be bothered with this, so let's just go on to the next, to, to, to the applause. Yeah. So we have uh, Max and then uh, Wallace uh, introduces part two of the drama. And here we have the sequence where Ned um, goes to the uh, guest house of Fred Cafe. Fred, yes. Uh, proprietor Herr Krun. Now, I don't speak German. You speak German. Um, the have, German is surprisingly good here. I mean, the, the grammar's pretty good, but the best bit of it, actually, and this is the, uh, the Austrian perspective that comes into play again, is that um, when Henry is specifying to Minnie um, that, uh, that the coffee should be with milk, he says, a bissel milk, As a, which is, bissel is the, 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 the Austrian or Southern German uh, way of saying a little. In Northern Germany, it would be bisschen. Okay. And I did wonder, I mean, that's, I've got no idea if Spike Milligan or Eric Sykes had spent any time in southern Germany or Austria, but it sounds as if, I mean, if it was sheer chance and that they lucked it out, absolutely, but it sounds as though someone might have done a bit of research there. Quite possible. I, I, I don't, Spike, as far as I know, never did. I don't know about Eric, but, um, you know, they, they were friends with the likes of Dennis Norden, Frank Muir. Oh, yes, and, they might have got that. 
ex-servicemen like from elsewhere absolutely absolutely um but again you know it would be so easy for milligan or sykes or both of them to just to put in cod german phrases yes but they don't so it's they don't. Really quite impressive and i love the conceit that we've got Minnie, who's in the kitchen and Crun's shouting down the hatch what Harry's breakfast order. Um, <laughs> this long protracted sequence of uh, Crun instructing her in German and then he has to go and tell her. Because yeah, but she, she repeats it back anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to confirm that she's got it. But, yeah, she, but, yeah. She, doesn't, but she doesn't understand it. Um, Harry sits back to read a picture of King Edward. Oh, of course, uh, yes. Who was still on the throne at that in 1909? I think it was the following mm-hmm. year that he died, wasn't it? George V. Um, uh, no, it was either 1911, uh, I seem to remember. That, right, okay, okay. I could be wrong. Um, the sequence, Apologies for any historians listening to this. Yes, well, you know, uh, this is not uh, making any claims to be totally historically accurate. <laughs> Um, but then we have um, Eccles. Eccles gets um, <laughs> thrown through a window, a stone with a man tied to it basically the only purpose of Eccles in this scene is to get Seagoon from one place to another um there's a lovely little yes, uh, lovely little bit of business with um Eccles has a note which he needs to write <laughs> uh, yes uh uh Eccles informs Seagoon that he has to go to the castle of the imperial hussars and ask the commander for the secret parcel and we all know what's in the secret parcel Oh, quite, yes. But so just going back to that sequence, there's one other thing that struck me as a little bit odd here is that Seagoon is surprisingly mean-spirited towards the Eccles here. And he comes out with that line about never mind Caxton, when it's quite clear that Eccles' handwriting is dreadful. Yes. Um, and then, um, I forget the exact line, you may have to find the clip for it, um, but and Eccles takes as a compliment uh, something which Seagoon plainly does not intend as such, saying you've got the personality for it. I think Eccles may have said that um, people always treat him like an idiot. He says, I don't want people to think I'm illiterate. Illiterate, that's it, yes. And Seagull says, why not? You have the personality to carry it off. Oh, you think Which so? Which is really a bit, it's a bit mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, Seagull, I mean, Seagull could be all things to all men. Seagull could be uh, kind. He could be malicious. He could be uh, petty. He could be sarcastic. He could be gullible. He, yeah. he is whatever the script uh, needs Requires him to be. It, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so then, so Seagoon and and, uh, and Eccles head off to the castle. And uh, we, we have this interesting sequence as well. So Eccles runs off and Seagoon says, I've never seen a man's boots move so fast. And Eccles says, neither have I. I'd better run after them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is a... Typical Which is wonderful. I mean, that, that's something you could, uh, if it weren't for the, the fact that it has to work as a sound gag, I mean, you could almost see that visually with the, you know. Uh... <laughs> uh, so both Eccles and Harry leave and the door slams. And then there's this extended period of just silence. Silence. Ladies and gentlemen, we would like to explain the reason for that extended silence. It's quite simple. When Ned Seagoon and the famous Eccles departed, the room was left empty. <laughs> Hence, the lack of sound. In case any of you have just switched on, here once again is the sound of an empty room. Thank you. I leave you with the empty room. Which sounds as though it's cut in. It is. Because there's a definite change in the sound. So Quite clearly, you can then hear, as it's ending, you can hear the audience coming back in, sort of tittering. You know. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's not like the, uh, the, the bit at the end of Scarlet Capsule, where the, the, it's left deliberately quiet so that everyone can imagine what goes on between right. Seagoon and... Cynthia, Cynthia. Remember? Yes. But just before Blood Knock shouts, you filthy swine. Filthy swine, yes. Yeah. Uh, Seagoon has obviously departed, and Crun and Minnie arrive into the room with his breakfast, and they, they set it out on the table. Um, the eggs and coffee and grapefruit. And this, is it sulfur that's mentioned there? Yeah. It sounded like it's right. 
I'm not, I was querying, I was wanting to query the grapefruit already, which Neddy uh, hadn't mentioned when he was placing his order for breakfast, but sulfur? Yeah, I, I don't. Again, well, here, what I've written down here on, on the script, the copy of the script, not the original script, mm. um, I've written down improvising and extended useful, meaning Sellers and Milligan just kind of riffing, aren't they? They just. Um, but it's like the umpteen times that, uh, that uh, Henry and Minnie get into an argument, and it, uh, the script doesn't actually necessarily say what, uh, what, uh, they, what lines they have to speak, but it's just argue. Exactly, exactly. Um, yes, so they they go through this this little routine and then they realise that Seagoon isn't there, so they go out of the room and just spend a period just shouting, here's Seagoon, coming in and out of the room. And, um, and it's it just... very Scooby-Doo like that, that <laughs> sequence. <laughs> and it, it, it builds up into a, it says in the in the script, it says, argue, building up to a frenzy. Yes. And then, and then the... Uh, Milligan or Sykes's notes in the script for the sound effect um, add gradually the smashing of shop windows, increase proximity of each crash, mix into battle, horses charging. Yes, you, have, you have the cavalry arriving at one point as well. Yeah, horses charging, cannons, bugle call, planes dive bombing, and machine gunning explosion. That's fairly accurate to what we get. Yeah. It yes, is. I mean, they, they do follow that pretty good, yeah. very closely, actually. Yeah. And it, it, it's become a bit of a routine for Minnie and Henry to have a, an argument which just builds and builds and builds. Again, uh, uh, something that uh, I think is fairly unusual um, is that they, uh, it ends with a declaration of love. Which isn't in the script. Oh, isn't? Right. No, so... The, the, That's the, fascinating. Cran says, let's, men, let's not start a quarrel. And she says, I'm not quarrelling. I can't say that word. I'm not quarrelling again. <laughs> Cran says, do you mean that, men? And in the script, it just says, Minnie just says, yes. But in the show, oh. Minnie says, I love you, Henry, buddy. <laughs> Which is absolutely lovely to hear, actually. Yeah. I mean, it's another one of those cases that could have you arguing in all sorts of ways as to what exactly the relationship between the two of them is. So what do you think is going on there? Um, well, within this particular one, they're definitely a couple. Mm. But in others, I'm not quite so sure. I mean, I, I do like the, the, the way that there's an occasional suggestion of uh, Minnie having had a, a relationship with Bloodlock in the past and Henry being impossibly jealous of this. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not particularly convinced that, there's any, any, that they could be siblings or just I don't know, they're possibly close friends and Henry wishes that it were more but he's also appalled at her, her um, modern-type dancing and so on. So <laughs> he can't quite bring himself to <laughs> Embracing modernity, yeah. Exactly, yes. Uh, I don't like to think of them as a couple because, ah. because that has, to me, that just has implications. I prefer to think of them as a brother and sister, and this, uh, this declaration of love is just, you know, sisterly love for her brother. That's in my head. <laughs> okay, um, and, and the difference in surnames is down to the fact that, um, well, anyway, if they were a couple, if they were a couple, you know, in the 1950s, they'd have to be married, particularly at their age. So, you know, her surname would be Crun, wouldn't it? Uh, yes, but I, 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 I've got a feeling that as, um, as Minnie does have a, a, a past as a saxophone player, as a dancer, I, I wonder if that's not her stage name. Possibly. <laughs> ah, there you go. There's, All some, the there's in, a new headcanon for you. They're living in sin. But I like to think that their brother and sister, um, she's a widow uh, and she'd be married to, I don't know, I was going to say Roger Bannister, um, a Mr. Bannister sometime <laughs> yes. in the past um, after she would sort of, she was uh, spurned by blood knock. Anyway. But then she'd be Mrs. Bannister. Oh yeah, she she's, miss, she's Miss. She's Miss. Oh God. Yeah. This, someone needs oh, to write, really? a, uh, write a monograph on the exact <laughs> relationship between Henry Crun and Minnie Bannister. <laughs> yes. We need to get Roger Wilmot out of retirement. I like the, the, the little appearances that Minnie does before you actually meet her properly within this show. So um, you hear her at the ball twice. Yes. yes. Um, I, the throw, we didn't mention the throne scene. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yes. That's true. Uh, but um, I think it's it's almost a pity that Minnie is the only woman you hear at the ball. I guess you could have had Cynthia there. True. Yeah. Or you could have had um, Sellers doing the um, 
the character, the, the you know, the mouse that roared. Have you seen the mouse that roared? I haven't. No. He plays a. He plays well, three, the Duchess, isn't it? The Duchess. Yes, he could have been yes. doing, which is kind of a, a, a gentrified version of Crystal Jollybottom from Razor Laugh. Mm-hmm. Essentially, could have had Sellers doing that sort of voice. Yes, you mentioned the throne room gag, uh, which is that it's locked. Someone's in there, and yes. um, uh, possibly racy for nineteen fifty-five. Possibly a bit, yes, but they get away with it because I mean, it's, it's only it, it's in the listeners' heads. I mean, it makes perfect sense. That there's a throne room in a palace. Yes, yes, we we have them. They they, they make up and uh, they go out of the room and the door shuts. And there's this very to me to my ear very rough cut or a clumsy edit. You have Greenslade saying, "Little do they know that by now Sigrun had reached the castle of the Imperial Hussars." And it just sounds like it's just sort of been spliced in there quite clumsily. But anyway. In, in a way, the, the way that Neddy cuts himself off in response to that, it seems to to divert attention away from it. In a, mm. And I realise that un, um, unintentionally, probably, but because yeah. it was actually the way that he cuts himself off that's, that caught my attention rather more. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Annie Greenside gets another plug-in for the Radio Times, of course. And then we're the next scene, we're at the castle, and this is the bit where I was... You know, as I said earlier, Pink Panther Strikes Again was brought to mind because we have Harry shouting from uh, near the moat, shouting up to the castle, and we have Bloodnock. And Bloodnock is in the castle, and he is with Ray Ellington, who's playing a character called Tallulah. That's um, for change, yes. Yeah. Um, for, for once, it's not Gladys. Well, no, but it, it does, Gladys does get mentioned a little bit later. Um mm. To, I'm, I'm, I've got to assume that Tallulah is a reference to Tallulah Bankhead. That's Bankhead, only, presumably, yes. Only Tallulah that I know of, who's, um, by the way, I'm not going to go into it, but whose private life, dear God, I don't know if you know about her private life, but look it up at some point. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Bedtime reading there. Mm, yeah. Uh, so Bloodnock says, lower the drawbridge. It lands on Harry's, on Seagun's foot. And then and then he somehow, Seagun manages to walk under the drawbridge. And then, <laughs> yes. and then it gets lowered again and hits him on the bounce. And uh, eventually, somehow or other, Seagun manages to uh, enter the castle. Um, then we have a bit of business with the parcel, the secret parcel, which is, and Harry says, oh, it's heavy, isn't it? Because, again, <laughs> it could only be done on radio, I suppose. Bloodnock says, I'm still holding on to it. Yes. <laughs> And um, again, a bit of plot. He says, Bloodnock says to Seagoon, this is to be placed in the bed of that imposter, Cron Prince Arnold. Uh, but first, pull up a portcullis and listen to Gladys Ellington. Uh, we have uh, Ray's number, and then Seagoon uh, immediately comes in and says uh, he's disguised himself as a chambermaid. He took the secret parcel into the bedroom of Cron Prince Arnold. Three hours later, he managed later, to get out. Yes. Um, Which it, doesn't get anywhere near as big a laugh as I'd well, expected. I was listening to it again, and it, you could hear the audience kind of gradually appreciates it. Ah, right. Or maybe not all the audience, but a, a good cross-section of it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they appreciate the implication, you know? Yes, yeah, so um, it's another case of you filthy swines, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then um, Grip Pipe basically turns up and uh, Harry informs or Seagun informs him he's put the parcel in uh, the Crown Prince's bed, finds out it's a time bomb. And then Harry, I keep saying Harry, Seagun gets on a horse and goes off to rouse the villagers and, and uh, uh, get the villagers revolting. Um, Which and, is another uh, wonderful sequence. Yeah, there's a bit cut out that's in the script um, oh. where, so Harry goes off on the horse and then we have Cron and Minnie turn up again uh, with his breakfast again. And Minnie well, says... Well, Minnie does. You know, within within the, the broadcast, or at least the, the version I got on CD, uh, Minnie does show up in it, but not Henry. No, she does a little bit later on, but the ah, sequence, okay. that, sequence that's been cut out, Minnie, uh, Minnie says, uh, your eggs are keeping warm in this gas oven. And there's an FX of a gas oven. And Harry says, or Seagun says, not now, I'm busy. And Harry, uh, Henry says, we can't carry this gas oven around Austria after you. And Seagun says, and why not? And Crun says, yes, why not? Mind you, don't drop it, Minnie. Okay, that bit's cut out. 
<laughs> mm. I, um, I think it's it, I can see why actually because it's all more effective having the the reference in the middle of the We Revolt Tonight sequence, um, the sudden throwback to it from Minnie alone later. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And we have this this sequence of um, repeated gag sequence of Harry knocking on doors and saying, we, we revolt tonight. Okay. In the script, he doesn't say we revolt tonight. He just says the revolution. So I think it was very wise that they built upon that and, and changed it yes. to we revolt, we revolt tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, he he has a, a, a sequence with William where they're sort of alternating, they're taking turns to say we revolt tonight. It's uh, very complicated to try and explain, but I'll probably include the clip. Will you vote tonight? Oh, good luck. <laughs> Will you vote tonight? Blimey, you back again. <laughs> right, get up! Ah, your breakfast is ready. <laughs> Not now! We're starting the revolution! Yes? We revolt tonight. Will you vote tonight? Oh, I must warn the villagers! <laughs> Look here, mate, don't keep picking on me. Try that house over there. <laughs> we revolt tonight. Look here, don't keep picking on me. Try that house over there. Right, mate. <laughs> By the way, is that phone call for me? Which one? That one. Pick it up and see. <laughs> Hello, Hello? We revolt tonight. Thank you. <laughs> yes? We have breakfast tonight. <laughs> Where's my revolution? Excuse me. Certainly. Uh, yes, I'm not. I was particularly impressed with that sequence. It's actually how few characters there are in it, and you get uh, Miss Throat right at the very beginning. Yes. But apart from that, it, it's a lot of William. A lot of William. And, and some it, Seagoon and Minnie. And Minnie, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, and to an extent, it did make me think. Well, they're trying to get a, a revolution up and going, but it's uh, by the sounds of things, there's a tiny community. Totally. Yeah, so it's, totally. It, I mean, it's probably doomed to failure. Well, in all sorts of ways, really. Well, maybe sellers couldn't be asked um, doing any more verses. Um, and this this goes on and on and on. And then sellers, as grip pipe, I guess, or, or sellers, sort of leans into the mic and says, "We just don't care." Yes, um, and then the next bit. Please tell me that's a contemporary reference because I didn't get it. Uh, yeah, he says, um, "We we know we haven't won the award." Yeah, and this is something I've tried to find out what that's a reference to. Presumably it's some sort of radio award, I guess. Presumably, yes. Um, I haven't been able to find out, and I'm sure that there are regular listeners to this show who who have the resources and have the knowledge, and they will be able to uh, explain that reference. So um, if anyone is listening, if anyone's listening, please let me know. And then we reach the, the denouement and, and Greenslade sets the scene he says meanwhile in the bedroom of the crown prince it is two minutes to nine and this lovely little sequence where there's a the sound of a ticking bomb a door opens yawning um, bed creaks sigh smacking of lips snore terrific explosion That's it. He's gone. the smacking of lips it it, it sounds like a, a very camp grip pipe thin doesn't it it does a bit, yes. I, I, it, it is plainly Peter Sellers in there, which does set up the reveals to yeah. what's actually happened afterwards. Um, but yes, as you say, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like who it turns out to be. No, it doesn't at all. Is, <laughs> no, which uh, is slightly disappointing. But, well, I, I guess, yeah. But yeah. it would give it away too much, I suppose. It would do. Uh, we have another little bit that's cut out, that's in the script, that's not, not, not recorded or cut out of the recording. Um, where William comes back briefly to talk about the revolution. But no, we have this explosion, and then uh, Seagoon cries, that's it, he's gone. And Grippart turns up and says uh, that uh, something's gone wrong. The Crown Prince left for Switzerland this morning. Seagoon says, well, who was in his bed? Yeah, I didn't swing you! 
there was a little bit more in the script for Blue Bottle to say, just that you've deaded me. But they, I think they wisely cut that out and they just go straight into the 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 theme tune at the end. And uh, that's yeah, so it's a bit unnecessary at that point. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we get very little Blue Bottle, which is a bit of a disappointment. But you don't always get Blue Bottle in every single show. And sometimes when you do get Blue Bottle, it's it's only a line. Um, exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, this one this one works well as a final reveal that show he was there all along. Just yes <laughs> yeah. yeah so um so there we go and uh interesting little exercise in sort of comparing the script to the actual show as it went out and it's a very it's a very good show as, as we say it's very well structured as far as goon shows go mm-hmm. and it's uh it's got some great lines some great music very atmospheric in places um, so I had been concerned when I was starting to listen to it properly and you know, doing all the, the homework for recording this, that it would actually kill the humour. But then once I realised you know, the, the, the things like the, the good, the, well, the Austrian German in there, the reference to Vic Oliver and so on, I thought, actually, mm-hmm. this is worth doing. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know whether all of the scripts would stand up to such scrutiny, admittedly, but... So. Mm, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, as I said, you know, I've got Peter Eaton's script. There are lots of scribbles and notes jotted down, but it's very difficult to read any of them. So but, no, overall, great show. Great show. Yeah, hugely um, enjoyable. But listen, Anthony, thank you so much for letting me in, infringe upon your Saturday morning. Um, <laughs> it's a great way to spend a Saturday morning, I'll say that. I had a lovely time talking to you. Thanks again to Anthony. I'll be back next week with special guest Laura Grimshaw. So look out for that. And in the meantime, if you haven't already, please rate and review on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you can review and rate pretty much. Um, Yeah. Thank you very much again. And I'll see you next time. Bye.